Welcome everyone. I'm your host, Katrine Erickson, the Executive Director of the Rungswin Research Program, a nonprofit focused on preventing cancer in patients with a rare inherited blood cancer predisposition called Rungswin Familial Platelet Disorder. I'm also an inaugural member of the Milken Institute Faster Cures Leaders Link Program. And in this podcast series, I will share interviews with leaders in the healthcare space who have made significant advances in the diseases they work on through their roles in venture philanthropy, pharma, biotech, academia, venture capital, regulatory agencies, and more. Today, I have the great pleasure of interviewing Dr. David Fagenbaum who is an assistant professor of medicine in the Division of Translational Medicine and Human Genetics at the University of Pennsylvania. He's Associate Director of Patient Impact at the Penn Orphan Disease Center. He's also the founding director of the Castleman Disease Center and co-founder and executive director of the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network, or CDCN. And most importantly, he's a true hero to the rare disease community at large. For those of our listeners who don't know, I'd love to jump right in and talk about your life's journey. David, you have a a story that is filled with such unique twists and turns, not to mention the many near-death experiences you've had to suffer through. And you ended up actually writing a memoir called Chasing My Cure, which has landed you as a New York Times bestselling author. I have to tell you, the book was incredibly moving, and your story is unforgettable. And honestly, for those of us in the rare disease community, your mantra of turning hope into action and think it, do it, in my mind, has become a rallying cry for all of us. Wow. Well, thank, thank you so much for that, that introduction. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm interrupting just to say how, how much I appreciate you having me on and, and giving us the opportunity to, to chat about some of those lessons from, from my journey chasing my cure. And, and, I, and I love um, the idea of, of lessons from my journey being helpful for other people. So when you reached out about this idea of, of having a discussion about how do we accelerate cures for rare diseases, I was all in. Yeah, there's a lot of us, right? There's 7,000 rare diseases out there and everyone deserves the right to fight and find a cure. And you've started to develop a roadmap for a lot of us. And I'm really looking forward to our discussion today. So maybe we could start with your story. How did you end up becoming the co-founder and executive director of CDCN? And one of the youngest, you're one of the youngest physician scientist faculty members at UPenn. I was a healthy third year medical student at Penn back in 2010. I wanted to become an oncologist in memory of my mom who had passed away uh, just a few years before that. And um, out of nowhere, I just went from this perfect state of health to being critically ill. I spent weeks hospitalized in the intensive care unit. My liver, my kidneys, my bone marrow, my heart, my lungs, they all started to shut down for an unknown cause. And we knew I was getting really, really sick really quickly, but we didn't know what it was. And Um, Over the course of several weeks, I gained 70 pounds of fluid. I had a retinal hemorrhage that made me blind in my left eye. I had my last rites read to me uh, when the doctors didn't think I would survive. And um, thankfully, I eventually was diagnosed with a disease. Thankful in the sense that we needed a title so we knew what to treat. But um, unfortunately, a disease called idiopathic multicentric Castleman disease, which basically involves the immune system attacking and shutting down your body's vital organs in a relentless fashion until you die, unless you can 
use a treatment that can stop that attack on, on your body. And so I was diagnosed and started on chemotherapy, which really saved my life just in time. Um, but unfortunately, I would go on to have relapse after relapse after relapse. I eventually relapsed on the only drug in development for my disease. And when that happened, I realized that there were no more options left, that I was totally out of options, that the only chance I had for survival was to get involved in research and to maybe find a treatment that could save my life. And then I knew that new drug development was not going to be possible to save my life. The timelines and the resources required to develop a new drug wouldn't be compatible with me finding something in weeks to months. You know, new drug development is years to decades. And so I knew my only chance at survival would be to identify basically a susceptibility within my own cells, something that maybe we could target with a drug that was already FDA approved and then see if maybe we could save my life. And so that's when I, I set out on this journey and I started the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network to advance research and to, to do just that. In your book, as you just described, it was really scary at first and no one knew really what was going on. I'm curious, is that the same journey that most patients with Castleman's disease have? I mean, is this the story for most patients where they all of a sudden just get really, really sick and it takes a while to figure out what's going on? Or do patients have different experiences with the disease? The first half of the experience is pretty similar to the way it is now, and that's patient being totally healthy and then out of nowhere becoming critically ill. The good news is, is that since I went through that, the second half is, is a little bit better. So it's not typically as long of a journey to go from, I'm really sick, I'm in the ICU with my organ shutting down to, to figuring out what is the disease that's, that's causing all the problems. And part of that is that through the CDCN, we actually established the first ever diagnostic criteria. There wasn't a, a diagnostic, there wasn't a checklist for doctors to go through to say, I think this patient has Castleman's and this is my checklist that makes me feel confident about it. So no criteria existed. And that criteria on its own has been a real game changer. But unfortunately, um, despite progress, there still are challenges with diagnosis. So it's different than it was 10 years ago, but it's still not where I think it needs to be. So we're continuing to push forward to make diagnosis happen more quickly. So actually, why don't you dig in a little bit to how did you get there? How did you develop the diagnostic criteria? And how are you raising awareness to help ensure that the medical community understands that you've created or, or worked in this collaborative network to generate these diagnostic criteria? Back in 2012, uh, when I relapsed while on that experimental drug, and I learned there were no more drugs coming down the pipeline, and I decided to start the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network, the first thing I did was connect with physicians and researchers around the world to get a sense for what was known then and, and what were the big gaps. So, you know, you really can't decide what you want to do tomorrow unless you have a good understanding for what we know today about a disease. And so I did that effort early on. And what I found was I found a few, a few big gaps that I thought we should fill. The first was that it felt absolutely essential to have a diagnostic criteria and treatment guidelines. Basically, what do we know today? Or should the checklist be for diagnosing the disease? And what, do we, based on what we know today, should the treatment protocol look like? And how should people be treated for Castleman disease, whether it's chemotherapy or, or whatever it may be? But it felt like solidifying that in one central place would be critical because otherwise people are diagnosing it and treating it all kinds of different ways all around the world. And some people get lucky and they're with the right doctor and other people don't. So, so that was one clear gap. You know, you have, to you have to define what it is that you're studying. So that's number one. 
Two, we felt that it was really critical that we bring together the physician, researcher, and patient community to tell us what research questions were important to them. What, what are research questions that need to be answered through studies? And, and we call that crowdsourcing, but it's basically just a, a fancy term for asking our community what, what's important to them so we could then establish an international research agenda that matches against patient needs. Um, and then third, it was clear that in order to do good science that's community-prioritized, patient-centric, you really need good, high-quality biospecimens from patients, so blood samples, lymph node tissue, bone marrow. You need good biospecimens, and you need really extensive clinical data to correlate to each of those biospecimens. So you need a natural history study to collect extensive data. And we felt that if we could establish the diagnostic and treatment guidelines, if we could crowdsource from the community about what research projects uh, and research ideas would be most important, and then if we could build the biobank and the natural history study to have high-quality biospecimens that are clinically annotated to actually pursue those high-impact research questions, that we could really make a difference against this disease. And so, so sorry, that's that's me giving you a, a bit of the, the 30,000 foot view for how we saw the path forward. And, and as I mentioned, number one on that list was establishing diagnostic and treatment guidelines. And so the way that we dove into that was that we reached out to every physician and researcher who had ever published anything on PubMed. Literally thousands and thousands of researchers had published a paper that mentioned Castleman's or were peripherally related to Castleman's in some way. And, and we reached out to all of them and invited them to join our virtual community, which at the time was just a very simple discussion board, and to attend a meeting that we held at the American Society of Hematology. That first meeting, we had 27 attendees, and it felt like the Super Bowl for me. I mean, it was like the most important event of my life to get all of these people together, these 27 physicians and researchers. And again, when we were all together, the, the real consensus was we've got to establish diagnostic and treatment guidelines. I mean, you can't fight a disease if you can't define it. And so the, the community really felt we should do it. We started to assemble experts. And then the next step for us was to get as much data as we possibly could get our hands on. So we reached out to physicians and researchers around the world. We were able to collect data on over, I think the total number was over 250 Castleman disease patients that we had clinical and laboratory data on. We got lymph node tissue, which is part of making the diagnosis of Castleman disease, on about 100 patients. And combining the data from the lymph node tissue and the clinical and lab data, we brought that all together, presented it to an expert panel of about 45 physicians and researchers. And we basically said, we're not leaving until we can all agree on what this criteria looks like. And of course, make sure that it's grounded in the data. So 250 patients plus 100 patient samples, who did all the, the actual work to analyze? I mean, was it the folks within the CDCN or was it the research community all hands on deck? Good question. So our model has generally been, we're going to get a priority area from the community. So we, we basically um, get a pulse from the community that something's important, in this case, diagnostic criteria. And then we establish a team of people that are going to do the hard work. So back then it was the CDCN team members and they were all volunteers. We were all volunteers. In fact, our team was all a bunch of medical students. I was still in med school at the time and I enlisted a number of my classmates to help with this. And so it was a small team of medical students going through the data to analyze the data to find the clinical and lab features that were most frequently present in patients versus patients with related diseases 
And then we always as assemble and establish a, an expert panel of people who see a lot of patients that do research. They're, they're kind of the, the experts. And so the hard work's done by the volunteers, the team members, and then we present it to, in this case, the experts from around the world. And they poked holes in it. They had you know questions and, and brought their own clinical expertise. But at the end of the day, we could feel confident considering it an evidence-based because we brought the data to, to the table and then expert consensus uh, diagnostic criteria because we brought the experts together. And like I said, we, we actually said, you know, we're not leaving this, this room until, until we can all agree. And, and it took about two days of discussions. And we did, we did take a break in the middle, I guess, but, but it, two days of discussion and, and we eventually um, agreed upon the criteria. You mentioned that you said, hey, we're not leaving this room until we all agree and define what these criteria are. It reflects your intensity and your clearly your sense of urgency. And you mentioned in your book that there was initially some resistance to that approach. How did you overcome that resistance? And what did you learn from that experience? Yeah, there, there was a lot of resistance early on. I think in, in part because as a patient with the disease that was you know actively trying to kill me, I had and I still have a tremendous sense of urgency that isn't always compatible with the typical research timelines. There was resistance both to the concept that we as a community were going to prioritize what research should be done, and then we would go out and we would find the right researchers to do it. As you're well aware, the traditional way research is done is that groups like ours raise money, and then we invite applicants to apply for the money and to tell us how the money should be used. And then we pick the best applicants. And that works for a really common disease or for a disease where you have loads and loads of money, where you're going to get lots of applicants and some of the applicants and some of the applications are just not going to work out. But as long as you get enough applicants and you've got enough money, you can feel confident that maybe some of those are going to work out. It doesn't work for a disease like Castleman disease, where you've got a handful of researchers all over the world who have a handful of expertise, right? I mean, they, they only know what they know. What is the likelihood that one of those five people is going to have the most groundbreaking idea and also be the best person in the world to study that idea? It's basically zero. This concept of, well, we're going to use the community to prioritize it, and then we're going to go find the right person to do it. And that person's probably not going to be in the Castleman disease community. They're probably going to be someone who studies a related disease or has experience doing um, something else. You can imagine there's going to be a lot of resistance from within the Castleman's community. So, wait a minute, why are you going to do that? You're just going to use our ideas and then you're going to find someone else to do the work? And I said, yeah, that's exactly what we're going to do because, you know, we as patients don't have time to wait for people to hope that the right research idea is, is conceived by the right researcher with the right skill set at the right time. That's just not compatible with our timelines. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of pushback. I have to say that I really think the reason that, that we were successful and that we've been successful is because a few key opinion leaders, including Fritz Van Rie, Tom Oldtrick, and others, they jumped on board with the idea. And I really feel that if, the, if those few early leaders hadn't jumped on board, I think there's no way we could have gotten the community around to this. But by getting a few key people on board with it, and they started sharing their ideas and they started really leading by example. It made the other key opinion leaders feel like, you know, they were going to be left out or, or miss something if they didn't jump on board. And then there is a, a point you get to where you have kind of like a critical mass where, OK, now you have enough people who are on board with this crazy idea that it's actually going to progress. 
I think it's commendable. It's so patient-centric, right? You're basically saying, look, I don't have the luxury of time. Time is my enemy. I need to move as fast as I can. And either you jump on or you don't. And I think it's great that you were able to identify the key opinion leaders and the, the principal investigators that saw the real value in that and the importance of that methodology. Did you come to the table thinking, crowdsourcing research ideas is what I need to do? Was that part of your vision from the get-go? It was not the vision at the beginning. It took me understanding how research happened. And I just spent a lot of time digging into like, how does rare disease research happen? When I was first diagnosed and first came back to medical school after being on medical leave for a full year, that's when a large donation was given to Penn to start an orphan disease center. So I had not yet relapsed from Castleman disease, so I, I didn't yet know that I would dedicate my life to finding a treatment for Castleman's, but I knew I had an orphan disease and I knew I was on an orphan drug. And so I wanted to get involved in the Orphan Disease Center. And the interim director at the time, Arthur Rubenstein, um, graciously allowed me to be a part of his Orphan Disease Center. So I did have the opportunity to spend about six months just digging into how does rare disease research work? What are the success stories? What are the not so successful stories? And, and how does this happen? And I, and I really, my mind was really blown because, and, and you, you've read Chasing My Cure, so you know, I had this, what I call the Santa Claus theory of civilization. And that's that up until I really dove into the rare disease world, I had this sense of, of the world that for every important question and every challenge, there must be people out there working to find solutions for that problem. And not only were they working really hard to find solutions, but they must be working together. Um, because if it's a big, important problem like Castleman disease or, or Runks one there just must be people and resources and collaboration happening. That sort of theory of civilization that was really shattered as I dove further and further into the rare disease space, I learned that not only were there some diseases where no one was doing any work, in fact, most diseases, no one was either doing any work whatsoever or any work that was likely to have any sort of a meaningful impact whatsoever in any sort of a reasonable time frame, And it was so difficult to, to see that and to, to understand that. I'll share a quick aside. I just had a call this past week with someone who was talking to me about this concept of drug repurposing for rare diseases. And he was telling me his team's been working on it for the last decade and that they're really excited about the progress they've been able to make. And they're really optimistic about their platform. And I asked, well, how many drugs have you got? You know, how many success stories do you have? Like how many drugs have you found that are having an impact on patients? And he was kind of like shocked by my question. And he said, well, we've had a bunch of hits. I said, yeah, well, how many do you think have proven to help in patients or, or may help in patients? And, and it's none. The answer was none. And, and I think that for me, it was kind of surprising because I was like, wait a minute, you just told me it's this you know, really great platform that should be used and it's promising and you've been doing it for a decade and however many millions of dollars have gone into it, um, but there's not a single example of progress. And so I think that it highlights that like sometimes the output within research, because I'm sure there've been a lot of publications from that. I think the output in research that, that really shocked me was that sometimes we believe that the final output is, did we publish a paper from it or did the experiment work? Did we find a result that makes sense? When I think all of that is really just a kind of a, a leading indicator of what you're really trying to get to, and that's you know helping patients. And I know all of us in the rare disease space, we all want to help patients, but I think sometimes we really need to take a step back and say like, is this screen that we're going to do and the first 999 didn't result in anything, you know, is it worth doing it the 1000th time? 
in that story, when you were speaking to that person regarding the drug repurposing, where do you think the gap was? Were they focused on one specific disease or was it a platform where they were testing a number of different diseases? Was there just a lack of focus? What do you think the reason for not actually being able to see direct impact on patients? I think it was a fewfold. I think one part of it is that they provide a service for external groups. And so, you know, it may be that those external groups are progressing and they just never fed it back. So that's a possibility. Um, I think what's probably more likely is that they provide the service and the external group takes on the data, understands it, but but makes a decision not to proceed um, with those early hits. I think it's partly because there aren't incentives well aligned when it comes to drug repurposing. Most drugs that are FDA approved are already generic. Over 90% of drugs that are approved by the FDA are generic because the FDA has been around for a long time. And so I think those are part of it. I think also all of us in science really are, we're, I shouldn't say all of us, most of us are, are quite optimistic and we believe that even if it didn't work the first time, that it's going to work the second time. And so it may be that they might be 10 years into it and uh, it may not have worked for the last nine and a half years, but I think they'd like to believe that it's going to work in the 10th year. That could also be part of it as well. Tell me about your research strategy specifically around drug repurposing. So clearly you're asking for the community to think of the most important research questions to address, generate ideas, and then go to those principal investigators or those key opinion leaders that can actually do the work. But are you asking the community at the same time to be thinking about the FDA-approved drugs on the back end as you're formulating your research questions? Absolutely. So um, so the fundamental premise, I mean, the, the reason I'm alive today is, is, like I said, is that sort of formula, which was, if I can figure out what's going on in my cells, and then if I can figure out if there's a drug that already exists that can fix that problem, then I can fix my disease. And so that was the formula. And of course, I had no way to know if A, I could ever figure out what was going wrong, or B, if there was even a drug that addressed the thing that I figured out was wrong. Those are two just huge unknowns with very, very little or low likelihood that we were going to find either of them. What we did find was that there was increased signaling of this particular communication line in the immune system called the mTOR pathway. And then, oh my gosh, there's literally a drug that's been around for 30 years that is a potent inhibitor of that communication line. So we started that drug on me and, and, you know, here I am over seven years later in remission. Of course, there was no guarantee we were ever going to find that correct target to be mTOR and, and certainly no guarantee that if you block it with this drug, that it's actually going to work because a lot of times there's things that happen in biology. Things are too high or too low. You block it and nothing happens. I mean, that, that happens, unfortunately, too often. So there were no guarantees, but, but this fundamental premise was there. And that fundamental premise really underlies so much of the work that we do today. And, and that's that we are going to spend as much time and effort as we can focused on the most high-impact studies that could uncover something about the biology of Castleman disease or COVID or other cytokine storm disorders so we can see, figure out what is going on in humans, not, not necessarily in animal models or cell lines, but what's going on in humans. And then once we can understand various aspects of, of what's happening in humans with these diseases, then we immediately ask, well, what FDA-approved drugs are known 
to modulate that thing. If there's too much of something, is there a drug that's known to take that down? If there's too little of something, are there drugs known to, to increase it? And it's really as simple as that. Um, but that sort of fundamental premise guides so much of the work that we do. And so when we go to our community and we're trying to get a sense from them around what are the research priorities, A, we ask patients to help us to distinguish between things like, do you put more of a priority or more emphasis on drugs that could be curative? Do you put more emphasis on drugs that are going to be long-term therapies, but you know, maybe better side effect profiles? Would you put more emphasis in uh, speeding up the diagnosis of Castleman disease? more emphasis into better understanding the quality of life impact of Castleman disease. So we ask some general questions and then we, and then we kind of open up the floodgates and we ask, give us all of your research questions. Give us anything that's ever come to mind for you. And so patients provide the full gamut from is my disease inheritable to my children to questions around, you know, have we considered a, a certain cellular signaling pathway in Castleman disease? And so we get this kind of full gamut um, and then our physicians and scientists, we ask the same question and we get similar answers as well. And, and we, we pull all that information together so that we can come up with a, this international research agenda that actually guides how we spend our money. It's awesome to have the patient voice. And I mean, I think one of the challenges many of us in this space have is trying to integrate patients into the research agenda. And it sounds like you've been incredibly successful. Obviously, we don't have unending capital to put towards all of the research questions, even though they're all really important. So how do you actually decide, okay, we're going to go after these top three or these top 10? Are patients involved in that process as well? Yeah, we do a two-tier approach. After we've done the whole ideation phase and we've gotten all the, the great ideas, and, and by the way, the most recent version, uh, we're, we're actually doing, it's called AIM 2021, the all-in movement, which, which is our term for this crowdsourcing effort. We're actually right in the middle of it. And we, we got 155 different research ideas. And as you said, we're, we obviously can't fund 155 studies. But from those research ideas, the next step is to formulate what are the kinds of research studies that can be done to address those questions because you know a question can just inform what's our study look like but you know those are two separate things and so our team the CCN we actually come up with research studies we formulate studies that we think could address the key research questions and then we kick it back to our physician researcher patient community for them to prioritize give us a ranking let us know what what's at the top what's at the bottom and then the second step of that is our scientific advisory board going through that list. And we do include three patient representatives as part of that scientific advisory board meeting, but it is primarily, it's over 30 physicians and researchers. So the kind of the final decision from the scientific advisory board is primarily made by a team of physicians and researchers, but certainly integrating and also with input from um, our patient community. That's awesome. I do want to pivot a little bit, but before I pivot to other potential approaches, I wanted to ask a little bit about the incentives and incentives being not always aligned for all stakeholders in the healthcare ecosystem. And I think when you think about FDA approved drugs, and many of them being generic, one of the challenges I'm sure you faced is how do you actually get funding for really expensive clinical trials? And I'd love to hear a little bit about your approach in doing that, because it's not easy to get a for-profit company to invest in a drug for a rare disease, right? Especially if it's gone generic. What does that look like for you? You're absolutely right. So companies will invest in rare diseases, but 
as you said, it's almost always in the context of a, of a new drug or a drug that is still on patent. So it's really hard. So maybe I'll, I'll even step back. And I know I've emphasized this a few times, but I'll just emphasize it again to say that there are over 2,500 drugs the FDA has ever approved. And those 2,500 or so drugs are approved for somewhere between 2,500 and 3,000 diseases because some drugs are approved for multiple diseases. But then there are also another about 7,000 diseases that don't have any approved drugs. And um, amazingly, so many of the um, proteins and cell types and genes that are important in one disease can actually also be really important in another disease. And so, for example, the drug I'm on, serolimus, was approved for kidney transplantation decades ago. Really, It works really well um, by blocking the mTOR signaling pathway. So it's great for kidney transplantation prevention. It's as an immunosuppressant. It's also good for Castleman disease. The question I have and what really you know, drives me is how many of those 2,500 or so drugs that are approved for about 2,500 diseases could actually also be treatments for the 7,000 diseases that don't have any approved drugs? And the answer is, is unknown because we, we don't know, right? But it's, um, it's not all of them. I, I know that every disease, I feel quite confident that every disease known, known to man probably does not have a drug that's already available that, that works for it. Um, but, I, but I also know that it's not zero because just within Castleman disease, we've actually identified two drugs that we've been able to successfully repurpose. And we have two more in the pipeline that we think look really promising. And, and that, that includes serolimus that's saving my life. And so there are drugs hiding in plain sight. And, and with that in mind, to me, you know, the fact that humankind has put in the effort to get a drug approved for something, and the fact that humankind has achieved knowledge that some chemical entity is able to control the disease in some way, I just feel like it's a travesty if we can't figure out all the uses for that thing. And, and, and the idea that there could be a disease out there with people suffering when the solution is just at their neighborhood pharmacy, that that I have a really hard time. So the, so the problem is clear, and I think everyone in the world agrees in the problem. You know, if there's a cure out there and, and you're suffering from a disease or someone you love suffering from a disease, wouldn't you want to know? Um, so that's, I think, really clear. But to your point, the challenge is the solution. And um, it's really hard because companies are not incentivized to understand new uses for old drugs that are generic. There, there's just no incentive. It costs so much money to do these trials and they would make no money off these drugs if they're generic. And so I think we've got it. We've got to fix this problem. It's something that's not going to be fixed on its own. I, I talk about in the book that, uh, and the subtitle of my book is A Doctor's Race to Turn Hope into Action. And it's when I learned, and really what I'm referring to is that at a certain point, I learned that I could, I could no longer just hope that someone somewhere would do something. I mean, it would be nice if everything we hoped for became a reality. And, and actually, I would, I would much prefer to not have to do the hard work. It'd be nice if I could just hope and wait. But, but I think I've realized that we can't. For these big problems, um, if we're going to hope for something, we need to take action. And I, I think that drug repurposing is an example of this, where we either need to, A, create incentives within the system so that companies are interested and, and, and frankly, incentivized to study new uses of old drugs, uh, and there's some sort of financial incentive, or B, we need to create some sort of entity, whether it's governmental or, or outside the government, where the sole task and the sole focus of this entity is to match 
diseases to drugs, regardless of whether they're generic or on patent or who cares. It's just drug disease matching and and really harnessing all of the data that, that are currently available and, and, and even data that aren't currently available um, to try to do this matching process. But but right now, it, it just it's not easy. I, I can tell you in our case, um, we've got a couple drugs uh, that, that we're effectively repurposing. One of them is the drug that I'm on. Um, so we've used it in me successfully we've used it um, off label in a number of other patients. So when a drug's approved for one thing, it can be prescribed for anything that a doctor wants to prescribe it for. And so serolimus has been prescribed quite a bit for Castleman's patients in this quote unquote off label manner. Um, and so we collect data on all this off label use. I think it's really important that if drugs are going to be repurposed and used off label, you need to make sure you have a nice system in place to capture whether they actually help or not. Um, and then we went to the to the manufacturer to, to Pfizer, um, and they very generously provided the drug for um, a clinical trial that we're doing right now. Um, but it was it was clear from our early discussions that um, they will happily provide drug for a trial, um, but that then Pfizer, like many other companies in the same position, um, would not be interested in investing. Um, new money uh, or investing money into studying a new use for a drug that's already generic. That's just, that's pretty much going to be found across the industry. It's not one company or another company, but they're just not going to invest money into it. So they'll give you the drug and your job then is to either as a foundation, raise money to do the trial or go to other foundations to, to pay for the trial. But um, you're not typically going to get resources to, to push forward these um, generic drugs. And then another example of a drug we're repurposing is a drug that blocks a pathway called JAK1 or JAK2. And um, there are drugs that block JAK1 or JAK2 that are not yet generic, that are on patent. And those companies are certainly more interested in funding studies to understand if they could work in Castleman disease because they, um, they're not yet generic. Right. They still have their window of their patent life. Yep. I think one of the points that resonates with me so much, and maybe we should say this to the listening audience, is that you said it was a travesty that we're not using these drugs that could just be, you know, at your local pharmacy. And we should remind ourselves that getting a drug to FDA approval is like a 10 to 15 year process with upwards of one to two billion dollars of investment. I think you're absolutely right. There's just been so much investment, not to mention the number of individuals, uh, patients who participate in the clinical trials to get that drug FDA approved. So I think your rationale makes so much sense on so many levels. And I think it's something that many of us should be integrating within our research portfolio as we think about tackling our disease. I wanted to also talk about the fact that you're applying this approach to COVID. And maybe you can share with us a little bit about what you're doing to try to look for drug repurposing for COVID-19. That's right. Uh, I guess it was March 13th, Friday the 13th of March last year when the world really, or at least in the U.S., really began to shut down because of COVID. And I found myself hoping that some researchers somewhere would kind of follow our approach. I mean, I'd heard that drugs were being repurposed, drugs like tocilizumab were being tried, lopinavir, ritonavir, drugs that were being tried, um, drugs that were already approved for something else. And I hoped that someone somewhere would systematically track whether those drugs work or don't work in the same way that we do through our Accelerate study. And I was hoping that they would 
follow our same approach of looking for therapeutic targets and then matching them to drugs that existed. And, and then about a minute later, I was like, wait a minute, why am I hoping that someone somewhere would follow our approach? Maybe we should just follow our approach for COVID. So I reached out to my team and obviously we were completely busy with, with Castleman's and Cytokine's from work more generally, but we did feel that it was the right thing to do. And, and so we launched a project called the Corona Project to systematically identify and track all treatments being used worldwide for COVID-19, which early on was all repurposed treatments. And more recently, it's still mostly repurposed treatments. But the idea was that you certainly read the headlines. Um, there were drugs like hydroxychloroquine, or they mentioned tocilizumab, lavinidaritonavir, and many others that were being tried early on in the pandemic. We launched this database to track all reported uses of any drug for COVID. And the, the goal early on was a 10-day challenge. I actually, I turned to my team and said, for the next 10 days, we're going to do this all in. We assembled a team of medical students. There was about almost 50 people that were part of it. And the idea was for 10 days, we're going to pull all this data together. We're going to analyze it. And we're going to learn what's going on in the first basically three months of the pandemic. And we were blown away to learn that 115 different drugs had already been tried in the first three months of the pandemic, which is just unbelievable, right? I mean, unbelievable. Earlier I said there's 2,500 drugs the FDA has ever approved. A hundred of them were used in the first three months. So doctors were trying anything and everything early on. And what's really incredible is the number is up to over 400 right now. Wow. So over 400 drugs have been tried to treat COVID. We're closing in on 20% of all FDA-approved drugs have been tried to treat COVID. Oh my gosh, that's a staggering statistic. It's crazy, right? I mean, the good news is, is that some of those have worked really, really well, like dexamethasone, tocilizumab, heparin, baricidinib. These drugs are literally saving, I don't know how many tens of thousands of lives. But unfortunately, there have also been a lot of drugs like hydroxychloroquine and, and like we were so hopeful with convalescent plasma, but other treatment approaches that have not turned out to be effective. What I found that's so important is that you have to track all of this because you want to make sure that you don't miss the ones that are likely to be effective. You don't want them to fall through the cracks, but you also want to track the ones that don't look likely to be effective so that you don't continue to pour resources into treatments that, that are unlikely to be helpful for COVID patients. Yeah. And then you factor in also a, a really important aspect of this, and that's that the vast majority of people infected with SARS-CoV-2 will recover and they will improve. And so if you give 100 people a drug and 95 of them improve, you don't know if the drug had anything to do with the 95 turning around and improving or if they, 95 are just going to turn around and improve without a drug. And so that's why it's so important to do these randomized controlled trials and randomly assign patients to either receive a placebo or receive the drug of interest. And then you see the people who randomly got the treatment, do they do, they do better than the people who randomly were given the placebo? And, and so... These sort of nuances have, have made it just so important to have a database like this. And something that we set out to do, but we never knew if it would actually be the case, is, is that these data are, are actually now used as a primary source when the NIH goes to prioritize drugs for trials. And so the Active 6 trial, which was uh, recently announced by NIH, used the Corona database as, as the primary data source to pick this drug looks promising, this drug doesn't look promising, let's include it in our trial. That's incredible. Congratulations. I Thank mean, you. to provide a resource like that to the community, to the world who's grappling with this pandemic, it's inspiring, really. Thank you. So I want to pivot uh, a little bit now to one of the biggest topics, I think, in the medical research nonprofit world, which is 
this concept of venture philanthropy. And most people, if they've followed anything around venture philanthropy, they've heard about the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. And venture philanthropy can mean a lot of different things. Yep. And I think many would say it's more than just you know writing checks. It's it's an approach, and it it's an approach that seeks out best practices and empowers people to make a meaningful impact on a problem together. And I'm curious about your thoughts on venture philanthropy specifically. I think venture philanthropy is such an important approach for for solving the problems that we've been discussing for the last hour or so. I think that intrinsic in this concept of venture philanthropy is collaboration, and that's bringing together stakeholders that maybe wouldn't typically be at the table. So nonprofit rare disease organizations haven't always been a part of the discussions around how do we move a drug forward. It's often been, we fund some of the early work along with the federal government, and then companies take it forward, and we cheer it along from the sidelines, or we help with the patient enrollment. Venture philanthropy pulls an organization like the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation or any other rare disease nonprofit right into the midst of things. And really, when putting the money down for these companies and for-profit initiatives, recognizes that this may not be successful. So someone else might not be willing to bet a million dollars or a half a billion dollars because it may not work out. But because we are so focused on progress for our particular disease, we're willing to make a risky bet like that because if it doesn't work out, we're actually going to learn something from a negative result that could be helpful for the disease. But if it does work out, this is going to be huge for our community. So the disease groups are willing to take on a little more risk than a traditional investor may be. And that's, I think, one great part. The other great part, as I mentioned, is the, the collaboration piece. It really brings people to the table that historically wouldn't have been at the table together. But I, th- I think that, you know, you and I were chatting about this before our call today and about how Just like any sort of investment, I think it's good to have a diversified portfolio. You and I talked about how I've had this incredible sense of urgency ever since I was diagnosed with this terminal illness, such a sense of urgency that as an organization, we kind of had a culture of urgency for good and maybe for bad too, right? You know, for good, it's always good to have urgency, but but that means that we might have invested into studies that were likely to have a benefit in the next year or two, as opposed to something that might be more five to 10 years. And I think that as I've continued to live with this disease and as time has gone on, I've realized that I think it is important to be a bit more diversified and to make sure you're taking the short-term shots on goal, but you're also taking some of the more medium and long-term shots on goal. Absolutely. You've been able to, in many ways, turn this disease into a chronic illness, at least for yourself and some of the patients. I, I don't know. For some of us, yes. Yeah. And so now you're thinking about the long-term goal of cure. So I'm curious if that is helping you shape your five, 10-year plan now with the CDCN. We talked about this concept of diversifying your portfolio. So are you, you thinking more about approaches where you might have to discover brand new targets that don't actually have a drug that is available? We are. And I think that because it's it's not something that we've done in the past, it's harder for us to to know where to sink our teeth in. There certainly are you know new drugs that are targeting new pathways that could have impact in Castleman disease. It's a new world for us because we're so used to to basically turning down all, all the incoming outreach from these new companies developing new drugs in new ways. That just as you know, it's hard to know where to invest your time and resources with new drugs in development because 
as you know, the vast majority will never get approval. Uh, the vast majority will either not be effective at what it set out to do, or it will be too toxic. Picking winners uh, among drugs that have these unknowns is really hard. You know, when I think about drug development, well, first, I, you need to know what might be a helpful target. If you were to modulate something in a disease that would be helpful, what is it? And then the next, of course, is, is there a drug that does that? And in doing so, does that drug have a tolerable safety profile or is it just completely intolerable? And when you have a drug that's approved, you've answered two of those three questions. You know that the drug hits that target and you know that the drug has a at least somewhat reasonable safety profile. So you really only have to answer one question out of the three and that's, does modulating that target actually help the disease? You have some uncertainty around that for sure, um, but at least you have uncertainty on just one of the three variables. When it's a new drug, you're going to have uncertainty in all three variables. And it's hard to quantify that certainty. So I think I need some advice from some of the listeners or from you on how to do this, because it's definitely a new world for us. I can't say that I have any <laughs> advice to give on that front. That's something that we're trying to prepare for needing to go down that path and potentially having to support the development of a new drug. But at the same time, also uh, have multiple projects that are looking into pathways that we know have already FDA-approved drugs available. I'd love to have a discussion on leadership a little bit. And my first question is, when I read the book, it starts off during your youth. You had this obsession with football. You started with peewee football, and you clearly honed your discipline and your focus and your commitment to goal setting as an athlete. Were there individuals who cultivated that in you at a young age? Absolutely. Um, and, and throughout my journey, there have been so many people that have been so involved in various ways. As you know, my book's called Chasing My Cure, but the one thing I would change is I would have made it Chasing Our Cures if I could do it over again, because it really has been this kind of our team effort. And, and as you said, there were probably peewee football coaches who had a, a real impact on, on my survival because they taught me something when I was 11 years old that maybe came into play later on. Um, and I'm here because of it. A football coach from high school that, that comes to mind that was just kind of relentless in being a perfectionist and expecting the absolute highest quality, not, not just the like beat the other team, but to be your absolute best. And I think that that sort of a commitment to excellence, I think was really important, but it also made me realize that like none of us can do that on our own. So you might have performed the absolute best you could on a particular play, but if you didn't communicate to your teammates about what you were doing or about something about that play, then you're just not going to be successful. And everyone has their favorite sport, but I think football is the ultimate team sport where not only are you all working towards a common goal, but you, you have different kinds of roles and responsibilities, which is actually kind of the way it is in the, in the real world where we all do different things. And, and I know that most sports, there's sort of specialization, but there's, there's very few sports where there's specialization like there is in football, where the offensive lineman has a completely different set of roles and responsibilities than the wide receiver does. But at the same time, they're equally as important. And, and it doesn't work if, if one doesn't work. I was a quarterback. I learned the importance of taking on the responsibility of the team on myself. And so it's recognizing we're all doing whatever it is that we need to be doing to achieve some goal. But at the end of the day, if someone else doesn't do what, what maybe they needed to do, that, um, that at the end of the day, it, it comes back to the quarterback because he or she, which is the real world analogy, maybe didn't communicate the way that, that he or she may, maybe needed to. So I, I think that there were some real lessons um, from the football field 
around leadership, around resilience. We lost a lot of football games, especially in college. I played football in Georgetown where we lost most of our football games. <laughs> and I think that that's sort of like working as hard as you possibly can all off season. And then, you know, getting blown out in the season opener and then, you know, blown out in game two. <laughs> that's the sort of stuff where I think that that helps with resilience as you, as you deal with, with challenges in life. Absolutely. I can't agree with you more about the value of a team and how critical it is for different individuals to make up that team. The diversity is so important. Everyone brings to the table something advantageous and different from you yourself and hopefully the other team members. So I, I can only imagine, but I'm going to ask it anyways, you've probably thought about that as you've built your own teams, You know, whether it be at the CDCN or even in your own research lab? Are you sort of applying that thinking to when you're building your own teams? I am. And I guess I can be um, more nuanced now than I could when I was a high school or college football player. And, and we use various tools to help us to figure out, are we meeting uh, the, the various diversity measures that could be helpful? There's something called true colors. I don't know if you've done it. It's kind of a personality test, but it basically gives you a sense for across these four variables, kind of where you fall in, in these true colors. And, and I, I think this is the kind of thing that's really helpful to do with teams and to get a sense for what are the true colors of your team. So are you guys more analytical? Are you more strategic across the, these various measures? But to understand what is the team's true colors, but then also individual team members. Early on in my career, I think that people didn't do things exactly how I did them or didn't measure success maybe the same way I did. I didn't totally appreciate, but that's just, you know, people just measure these things differently or, or, or you know, we're all, we all bring our own skills and, and approaches. And so I think that true colors, at least for me, has been, has been a real game changer to just understand where people are coming from and make sure that we're aware of everyone's true colors. Yeah. And when you have that awareness, then you can actually bring out the best in each other and hopefully be synergistic as a team. Exactly. And without the knowledge, it's, it's, it's more difficult to do. Although, at least for my team, I'm usually pretty good at being able to predict their true colors before they actually do the test. Because, I mean, the point of true colors is like, it's like who you are, you know, fundamentally. And so, you know, as a boss, you should be able to get, have a pretty good sense for your employees. And as a colleague, you should have a good sense for your colleagues and collaborators. But, um, but it's, it is nice to have, have the data to, to say, okay, this is, this is something that's going to motivate someone who might, might fall in this category. Yeah, spoken like a true scientist, huh? Data. <laughs> Everything falls on data. I want to close with one more question, and that is, you've given so much advice already during this whole discussion, but I think that it would be great to hear if you could distill it down to one thing. You know, what would you tell others who are in your position, either as a patient or a nonprofit leader, or even, you know, someone working in drug development within a company, people who are really driven and hyper-focused on changing the natural history of the disease they're working on, what piece of advice would you give them as they look forward? This is tough. You know, I had to, I had to write a whole book that's like 250 pages for me to try to, <laughs> um, try to get this all, all into one place. So I can't give the 250 page answer. So if you, if you were to ask me to boil it down to one thing, I'll, I'll give, I'll give advice and then I'll also give something a bit more tangible. So on the advice side, I really do think that my life changed when I started reflecting on what I was hoping for 
and started asking myself, what can I do today, tomorrow, and the next day to get closer to that, which I'm hoping for. And I think it may seem really, really simple. And it, and I think most people are like, oh, well, I already do things to achieve the things that I'm hoping for. I can just say in my case that I did a lot of hoping that some researcher somewhere was going to figure out something for me. And I did a lot of hoping that my doctor was going to have all the answers for me. And it wasn't until I realized, oh my gosh, I'm going to hope for it. I, I should probably take some action. But really, my life changed. So I, I think that I would encourage anyone listening to this to, to just listen to yourself when you're hope for something. What is it you're hoping for? And then ask yourself, what can I do today, tomorrow, and the next day? And the next day after that and on to try to achieve the thing that I'm hoping for. And in my case, finding a repurposed drug that could save my life, there were no guarantees that I was going to find it. The only guarantee would have been if I didn't do anything. And I can guarantee you I would not have found anything if I had not searched. I had no guarantees that I would find something if I did search, but I knew the alternative. And so I think reflecting on what you're hoping for, turning that hope into action is the number one piece of advice. That's like the you know, the fundamental thesis of, of chasing my cure. And it, it's why I'm alive today. So I can feel really confident that it's good advice because you know I'm, I'm proof that it's good advice. But I think that as far as if I were to then try to dig into like, what's one area that I'm really excited about and, and optimistic about. And I think that anyone listening to this podcast already knows what I'm about to say, but drug repurposing, I think it, is such an untapped opportunity. There are drugs out there that may or may not be effective in your condition or a condition from someone you love. And I just feel like in parallel to really important new drug discovery work, I think it's really critical that we dig really hard to see, are there drugs that could be repurposed effectively that could save someone's life in the next year versus in the next years to decades? And maybe I'll just, as the, the scientist in me doesn't like to make a statement like that, without at least giving a little bit uh, of an anecdote or, or some data around it. Just we'll close with the story of a 16-year-old patient who had been talking to her doctor. She's a Castleman's patient in Chicago, and I'd been talking to her doctor for about nine months because she spent most of those nine months in the hospital in critical condition, and nothing was working for her. Uh, they were giving her chemotherapy and all of these cytokine blockers like Siltuximab and Tocilizumab, all this stuff has been tried. Nothing was working. Even chemo wasn't working. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah, it was a really, really bad situation. And this four, 16-year-old girl was really suffering. And, and we knew that she was going to die in the very near future because you can't be in critical condition in the hospital for months. You will eventually, one of your organs will stop working. You will develop an infection. Yeah. It's just, it's not compatible with life. Weeks before this conversation, we did an experiment in the lab based off some data that we had generated uh, around this particular communication line called Jack 1 2 that I mentioned earlier. It was very preliminary, but we did this experiment. The experiment confirmed what we had seen from our computational analyses. So we had some computational data, and now all of a sudden we had some in vitro data. And conceptually, it made sense. And just talking to this doctor and saying, you know, I know that we're out of options, and, and everything that's ever been tried in Castleman's patients has certainly been tried in this young patient. But just a couple of weeks ago, we did this experiment in the lab. It's based off the single cell RNA sequencing data. You know, you could consider trying this drug. And of course, the doctor considered it. And, and obviously, in the absence of other options, decided to try this drug in this young girl. I just saw her on video yesterday. She's been out of the hospital for over six months now and doing really well on this drug. Yeah, that was just 
sitting in the pharmacy in the hospital that she was spending months in. Um, and this drug has, you know, a notable safety profile where, you know, we're going to have to watch out for things and it's not one of these benign drugs, but this drug was just sitting there. And I just think that we as a medical community, we've got to figure out ways to, to unlock the full potential of all drugs that are available to humankind. And even if there aren't incentives in place right now, we've got to create the incentives. If we can't create the incentives. We've got to figure out ways that groups like yours and ours can do the hard work to uncover these sorts of things. But this young girl in, in Chicago, she almost certainly would not be alive if not for some computational laboratory work and a, and a random conversation. And, and that's not what we want, right? We don't want a world where a random conversation and some you know, data in a lab have to kind of randomly combine to help a patient like Kayla, because when things randomly happen, that means things randomly don't happen. Wow. I mean, what a beautiful story. And I, I, think, I think you're absolutely right. I think there's a number of groups out there and then through convening organizations like Faster Cures or Rare is One through Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, we should be able to push for policy that would enable us to do this in a systematic way. The story that you just shared and your own story is, as you said, proof, proof that this works and can actually save lives. So I am 120% convinced that this is something we should really try to all hold hands together and move this forward because this just makes so much sense. There's really no reason not to. I want to close by saying thank you so much, David, for taking the time. I know you're incredibly busy with all the work that you're doing, but sharing your experiences as you know a patient, a physician scientist, an executive leader, your story is, as I've said, inspiring and moving, and uh, I, I really appreciate you taking the time. It's been a pleasure. Well, I, I've so enjoyed this and um, so appreciate the wonderful work that you're doing and so thankful to, to have you fighting in this rare disease community alongside us and um, you know, look forward to, to many more of these conversations. Absolutely. Let's, uh, let's work together. <laughs>